Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hi everyone. It's a somber morning as I record this and it's hard to record this without getting upset, especially after seeing the video of Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times in front of his kids after breaking up a fight. He is a father, a son, an uncle, and a brother who likely will never walk again. All I have to say is how many? How many black and brown people must be violently treated at the hands of the police? How many videos must we see online of black and brown bodies taking their last breath due to the actions of those meant to serve and protect us? How many demonstrations, boycotts, strikes, protests need to take place before the people in power listen? How many? What is it going to take before the powers that be, those we elect into office and the people with money in this country realize that we need changes in our justice system from top to bottom that address the systemic root causes that put BIPOCs in a cycle of poverty, in a school-to-prison pipeline, in a system that sees us as less than human. How many? What's it going to take to say this cannot continue? What's it going to take before we all say black lives matter? Shout out to all the millennials and Gen Zers out there advocating for change. I really hope I live to see the day when we as a country work to prevent what happened to people like Jacob Blake, like Breonna Taylor, like George Floyd, and so many others from happening to anyone else. There's no smooth transition here, but I'm looking forward to sharing this next interview with you. I spoke with Rosa Clemente, the first black Puerto Rican Afro-Latina to run for vice president under the Green Party. Soon to be Dr. Clemente, she is an organizer, a lecturer, and an independent journalist. We covered a lot of ground on things like the younger generation fighting for racial justice, George Floyd motivating people to take action from the streets to the suites, speaking to family around issues of race, resistance in the face of oppression, the presidential election, and a whole lot more. Let's jump into the interview. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast, everybody. I am joined today by Rosa Clemente. Rosa, thank you so much for being on the Paseo Podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. And Chicago is my second home, so I, I miss going there right so, now. So, yeah, Chicago is a great, a great town. So you're calling us from New York, right? Yeah, Albany, New York. Most people forget it's a host state and not just yeah. New York. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for educating us. Yeah. Um, hopefully, we're, we're going to learn a lot more in our discussion today. Uh, but before we dive in, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? 
Um, yeah, my name is Rosa Clemente. I was born in the Bronx um, as hip hop was emerging um, and been an organizer, independent journalist, vice presidential candidate, you know, um, for a very, very long time. Yeah, and, and, and now I'm actually completing my dissertation around Afro-Latinx identity in the United States. So I should have finished a while ago, but I think this was a time to finish it because the last year has been really explosive in many good ways. How we talk about Afro-Latinx, Black Latinx identity, and also a lot of problematic things that need to be corrected. And it's really just an incredible time during this crisis to see a lot of young people and non-gender conforming people really not only taking to the streets, but taking place and, and being super unapologetic about it. So as someone that's a little older than the younger folks on the street, it's just an incredible moment in history. And as a historian, this is what I always hoped would happen and it's happening, so. You mentioned this movement, this larger movement that feels like it's, it's finally beginning to just kind of spread out and it's led to this, this uprising, really, really, for the most part, led by our young people in the streets, as well as going hand in hand with some of our organizers that have been doing the work for years. So we've seen this uprising in this country, around the world, by BIPOC people. What have your thoughts been on the media coverage around these protests, around this uprising? Have you felt like there's been good coverage? Have you felt like there's been some problematic bias? What are your thoughts? I'd never looked to mainstream media to tell our stories fully which is why I became an independent journalist. I didn't go to school for that. It was just training on the ground. And so I don't really look at mainstream media to tell the story fully because if we were to really examine the last three months of coverage, especially post George Floyd and, and continuing uh, violence against black and brown people by the states, the mainstream media really latched onto this because they couldn't understand why their kids, right, their their nephews and sons, their daughters or the white children in their lives, they couldn't imagine why they were on the streets fighting for racial justice. And that's the work of a new generation of black and brown folks that have no problem working with white folks as long as white folks play their position. And their position being either put your body on the front line, like I don't use the word ally, you either a co-conspirator or you're not down. Like I, we don't need allies. We need white, independent, anti-imperialist people. When you deny the history of black and brown people in this country, white young people are also denied their history of knowing about white anti-imperialist organizations like the Weather Underground or Laura Whitehorn, Naomi Jaffe, y'all in Chicago, um, you know, and Chicago has been a stronghold for a lot of revolutionary black, brown, and white folks that come out of there. So, you know, it, it was critically important that the mainstream media kept covering it, for me, what was more important was the amount of podcasts and independent media by our people analyzing why white people were finally basically taking leadership from black and brown bodies and brown, mm -hmm. black and brown people. And that's a very different thing than my generation. I'm 47 and we tolerated white folks, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or 
we they weren't down with us now the way a younger generation has come to the table is like y'all could be down with us as conspirators to racial justice and you can follow us or you can get out the way but i also do believe that what happened with george floyd i think this was a very different video that we've seen we've seen a lot of videos like this i mean it took years for people to see what happened to laquan mcdonald in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I think the difference with this is that not only was it such a long protactic time where we actually saw a man breathing and then finally stopped breathing, we also heard people on the side saying, stop, get off of him. Yeah. You're killing him. Stop. And I think that just was so visceral for so many people plus with this COVID crisis, plus knowing that African-American and Latino people are disproportionately dying from this virus. As a historian, there always comes a time when you don't know when it's coming, but when it comes, it's mad quick. Yeah. So within 24 hours, the streets were filled. Um, and then obviously having a militarized police being sicked upon people in front of the white house and subsequently i think a younger generation including white people are saying these systems are all bad they're all bad they're all broken they all have to go and um that's a political line of operational unity and solidarity that i have not seen in my lifetime but has happened before it has happened before but now we really have a lot of independent media and people like us that are really analyzing it also from the streets to the to the suites i guess you know yeah. and it's a reckoning that needed to happen it's still not enough but um it's a very different time right now in the united states of america let's shift gears a little bit you mentioned uh you, you kind of touched on coalition building you don't use the term ally you use the term co-conspirator being with us in this work. Thinking of the Latinx community, when the uprising re really felt like it was at a, a fever pitch, it was at its peak, I remember seeing online these videos of like Latinx gangs, like protecting the neighborhood. And I thought it, it was just so counterintuitive because the whole reason we're, we're having these uprisings is because black and brown voices, indigenous voices have been suppressed at every turn. And that this idea of the American dream is not really built for us, this thing that we've been sold, the generations before us have been sold on, is not really made for, for people like us. And I felt like there was a lot of like anti-Black sentiment in, in, por in parts of the Latinx community. And, and people were, at least from what I was seeing online, there was a lot of support but I would see these videos and just think, what's going through people's minds? Like, do people not know that we're all in this together and the importance of coalition building? And even looking at our roots as Latinx people, we're not, we, we just don't have bloodlines from Europe. We have bloodlines from Africa. We have indigenous roots. And it just felt like a turning of the back on where we come from and, and how the Latinx people as a whole have come to be. Why do you feel that that's present? I think a lot of it is people don't study the history of particularly African-American and Puerto Ricans, but African-American folks and other Caribbean folks, right? So what you're referencing is a couple of videos that came out of Washington Heights, New York, mm -hmm. where it's a predominantly Dominican community. 
although it's being gentrified. And I think that's easy for people to latch on and say, well, damn, then all Latinos are anti-Black, which mm-hmm. I mean, right, that's bullshit, straight right. up. It's right. historical, it's not true. I mean, let's again look at Chicago. Fred Hampton created the Rainbow Coalition. That included the Young Lords with Chacha Jimenez, the American Indian Movement, the White mm-hmm. Patriots, and the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. So if we were just to look at the history of the Black Power era post the Civil Rights era, of 1965, we've always been in solidarity with each other. So this is the state right now, or let's talk about the American project, realizing that we are now the majority, we being non-white people. And one of the tenets of white supremacy, the first one is to divide and conquer. So do we have inter-ethnic conflict? For sure. I grew up in a time in New York City where Puerto Ricans and Dominicans didn't get along. And when I talk didn't get along, mean like gang violence and murders, mm-hmm. right? Because Puerto Ricans didn't like Dominicans, Dominicans didn't like Puerto Ricans, nobody knows why, it's just what it was in New York in, in the early 80s. Also, what people don't recognize, except for Puerto Ricans, all of this kind of like amorphous, uh, amorphous term latinx what does that mean yeah like there's no land called latinx Mm -hmm. there's no ethnicity there's no racial group within the 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 racial social project in the united states so it's always going to benefit white supremacy to be like look dominicans are now Mm anti-black as opposed to saying this whole system is anti-black Like, is Condoleezza Rice not anti-Black? Is Clarence Thomas not anti-Black? Like, Mm -hmm. yo, anti-Blackness is a politic that people choose to be part of. And until we, as this larger Latino, Latina, Latinx community, become more and more visible, white supremacy will continue to divide and conquer us if we don't tell the history. So whether it's Chicago, New York, Miami, Newark, New Jersey, as African-American, African-descendant people, indigenous-descendant people, we're always in solidarity. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with inter-ethnic conflict. And we actually do deal with that as well within our movements. So I think it benefits the system to be like, oh yeah, there's like 25 Dominican guys, you know, using the N word in Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's important. And we have to be like, that's unacceptable. But we cannot allow this narrative that all of a sudden, like we being like Puerto Rican or Dominican or Panamanian are the ones that literally have the knee to our neck, to other people's necks. We don't have that power. Mm-hmm. And until people understand systems of power, there will be the inter-ethnic conflict. But I do, and because I am, a, again, a historian, I see more solidarity and operational unity than I see conflict. But as an organizer, when I see conflict, I come in with my skills and my comrades' skills to deal with that quickly. And it was dealt with quickly. If people look at media the day after what happened 
that moment in Washington Heights, there were hundreds and thousands of Afro-Dominicans being like, yo, that's not who we are. Yeah, and, and, and lastly, people have to understand, not only have our lands, like the homelands we are from, been colonized, like France Fanon said, our minds have been colonized. Mm -hmm. So while you're becoming an organizer activist and Richie Perez, a young Lord that was a mentor to so many of us, he would also say, you got to get rid of the mentality of pelo bueno y pelo malo. Yeah, I mean, you made a great point there, Rosa. I, I do remember after seeing those videos, I mean, definitely was taking aback. I was like, this can't be a widespread thing. And I was so proud of the Puerto Rican community here in Chicago. That's not a reflection of the Latinx community. And I almost saw, I feel like I saw even more organizing for demonstrations around the city by different Latinx orgs to really stand in solidarity and be a part of this, this, uh, this larger uprising. So I, I think that's a really great point you made, that that's, those little videos are really put out there to separate us. It's yes. this idea that if you have, if this group of people has something, then that means this group of people won't have anything. Um, and yeah. it, it pits us against one another. So then now we're looking at each other and questioning each other's existence as opposed to how we all exist in this society and how, who is it really serving and who is it not. I specifically identify as a Black Puerto Rican woman. Um, so I don't use the word Hispanic. I don't mind mm -hmm. if, you know, if I'm at a lecture and somebody says Afro-Latina or Afro-Puerto Rican, Rosa Clemente, um, you know, and then I'll always go up and say, you know, I, I identify as a Black Puerto Rican woman. That's my racial identity. That's my national identity, uh, as well as my gender identity. I do like that. Latinx was a disruption to the gendered term of Latino, Latina, as the Spanish language is gendered. Yeah, but definitely. in a recent in a recent study by the Pew um, Research Center, it said that less than two percent of quote Hispanics have ever used the term Latinx. Mm -hmm. And what really this is is like, look. I've been in the academy for over 25 years. You know, I got a bachelor's, master's, and finishing a dissertation. If I'm sitting in a graduate symposium, we're using words like intersectionality and cisgendered and Latinx and all these terms, right? And I think that's okay. And I think it's great if people have ideas and we debate them. But if I'm going to the hood in Albany, New York, no Puerto Rican or Dominican is going to be like, yo, I'm Latinx. They're going to be like, yo soy from Puerto Rico, and I'm actually from Moca. Yo soy from the Dominican Republic on the, you know, border of Haiti. Like, if you yep. go, if I see some African-American brothers and sisters, they don't say they're African-American. They're going to be like, I'm Black. Mm -hmm. Right? So yeah. what ends up happening is that sometimes as organizers and definitely in academic spaces, we use elitist language, right? We're elitist in how we write, how we talk. Even though I am have been in this academic space, I've been in Black studies all my life. I've been under the, the guise of what we call scholar activism. That what's the point of me getting my PhD if I'm not organizing in my community, but also listening to the brothers and sisters on the streets. So I really believe in grassroots intellectual people, right? Like when mm -hmm. I'm doing something, 
these are the people I ask. I ask people who are formerly incarcerated or people in the hood, like, am I doing this right? What am I saying? What am I missing? So we have to be careful to use language that someone else imposed on us because they don't know how to deal with us. They're like, you're not yeah, really white, but you're still light skin, but you got African features. What are you? Mm. Oh like, my gosh. <laughs> right? And they'll yeah. be like, or, and then I'm like, what does your family look like? I got the whitest of the whites or the blackest of the black in my family. Mm. I got cousins that got red hair and blue eyes. My dad wears an Afro when he had hair and my mom is Blanquita as anybody else, you know? So, <laughs> you know, and, and the way I ended up learning this was growing, uh, going to school, not growing up in New York City. Um, but, you know, obviously I actually had never looked at my mom and dad like, damn, mommy's mad Blanquita, daddy, mm -hmm. negro, moreno, you know, and actually I didn't, I also think it's a, it's a fallacy to say that, all of us are anti-black because mm. that didn't happen in my my growing up with my mom and dad not yeah. one time now my dad has some biases against other ethnic groups that i had to check him on you know <laughs> when i was going to college and now he knows well, i'd have to be like mom you can't use that language that's not what asian folks call themselves and she would be like i didn't know now i know so yeah. you know i think the most important thing about everything we do is like are we having these conversations with the people in our family we love and and you know are we giving grace and space that not everybody knows everything at the end of the day but what people usually do do know is what's just and what's injustice and that's how you kind of connect to people i did come to a point it's probably been over a decade or maybe when my daughter was just born because she's now 15 mm -hmm. where I had to really cut some of my family members off because of their racism. Mm. You know? And I had to be like, yo, if you say that shit one more time, you're not coming in my house. All right. You said it one more time. Like you're not coming up in the crib and I'm not going to the family reunion if you're there. Mm. And <clears throat> what I realized with most of us is people will say as organizers, organize your family first. But I also say there comes a point where you got to be like, yo, if I'm not taking that shit from somebody in the streets, I'm not taking it from you. I'm not going to a family reunion where you use a derogatory term against Mexican or LGBTQ people or African-American folks, not because my husband's African-American and my daughter's a black Puerto Rican because you're racist. So I don't care that we share a bloodline. If you're going to continue on this shit, I'm out and I'm not going to have my uh, nuclear family around that shit, you know, and, yeah. and that's a real long time for me. But the more I did it, the more my parents respected it to the point where my dad was like, man, they didn't teach us any of this in Puerto Rico. Or my mom's like, I didn't know any of this. I wouldn't have known if you didn't go to college or like, you're right. Like he can't come over with a Confederate flag on the truck. I'm like, hell no, not to our house, but not up in my crib or my family's house. Are you going to come up with that racist shit? And the fact that you're half Puerto Rican, Part of me should be like, I should teach you more. When I'm 48 and you're 45, I don't have time for that shit, man. No, I'm probably, I hear that. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, my yeah. time now is becoming very limited on this earth, and I'm very cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I always tell younger people, if it doesn't feel right and it causes you harm, it's okay to walk away.
It really is. Yeah. I think that's hard for a lot of people to get the scissors out and cut people off, especially when it's family. Having discussions below the surface level and having these conversations when people do problematic garbage. It's not easy for a lot of people to do. Let me say this outside of the yeah, race. Sure. Um, what I've seen in many of our households um, that are, um, you know, Latino, Latina, Latinx, with lack of better terms to encompass all of us is I really saw it w- and, and, and in my family how, you know, for a long time, I would be like to my mom, like, yo, that's not Theo's roommate. Nobody has a roommate for 30 years, Mm -hmm. right? Or that's not my cousin's, like, friend. That's his partner. And what it is that we do a lot in our communities is, like, don't say nothing. It's all good, but we're not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. The thing is that when you don't talk about it, what we've essentially done before your generation is erase our families that are LGBTQIA or trans or queer, right? So it's more like, no, it's bien. I know we know what he, but we don't talk about it. Well, when you don't talk about it, you don't affirm him and you erase him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took me till very recently to be in circles where people like, girl, you know, that's mad heteronormative. And I'm like, actually, no, I don't know. Tell me, like, what, what am I doing wrong? Um, And I think we may be at a better place in our communities around that. But I also think about my cousins or my theos or thethes, right? That couldn't live their lives fully with their partners by their side fully. And what I didn't want to do is continue that trajectory, especially around um, LGBTQIA, trans and queer folks in all our families. That's a great point. It's like, it's one thing to talk about J-Lo around the d- dinner table. It's another thing, and it says a lot about a family when Silvia Rivera is a conversation around right. the dinner table. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, yeah. I definitely hope as a community, we get to that point where we are willing to have these dialogues with one another and really bring in the full brevity of our history because it's not just all heteronormative stuff. I mean, we, right. we, we are such a, a, va- a wide spectrum of what people. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based grassroots educational health and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's p-a-s-e-o-p-o-d at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Thank you.
I did want to I did want to shift gears a little bit. This is this is kind of related. You mentioned the the spectrum of color that is your family. Can you share a little bit about what embracing blackness looks like to you? I was born in the Bronx, and then when I was eight, mom and dad moved us to Westchester County. I know other people are listening, but like let's say in Chicago, right? Then you have like Rosemont, right? Is like the suburb mm-hmm. a little bit. So my experience was that I grew up in one of the poorest congressional districts. And when I was eight, my parents moved us 21 miles away to Westchester County, the second richest suburb in the United States of America. So from eight till I graduated from high school, I lived in a very, very small village called Elmsford, New York. And I went to school and I graduated with 37 people. So that means that the entire community where I grew up was African-American or white. And everybody was affluent. Everybody's parents had two jobs. Everybody's parents were together. You got a, everybody got a car when they were 16. Our school trips were not to the Bronx Zoo. They were to Spain, Portugal, and Morocco in a public school. You know, so I had this crazy experience of like five days a week, I would be in this suburban utopia, the only Latina, but it it didn't really dawn on me because we were such a small town that everybody united around sports, uh, sports and how good we were as students. When I went to college in upstate New York, where I am now in Albany, New York, I went to a state school, the State University of New York. And the first year I was, you know, finding my way. Uh, Most folks don't know until they ask me. I was very quiet and introverted. Uh, Wow. (laughs) That's just such a contrast, Rosai. You're like... I know. Yeah, no, that's such a a fun fact to know about you. Okay. And the second year when I was a sophomore, uh, one, of the, one of the brothers said, yo, you need to take an intro to civil rights class and the intro mm. to Puerto Rican history. And I was like, I'm Puerto Rican. I know what the hell is. <laughs> no, you don't. And I took these two classes and they changed my life because the intro to Puerto Rican history class, I didn't know we were a colony. I didn't know about independistas. I didn't know about political prisoners. I had never heard of Abisu Campos, Lolita LeBron. I had never Mm. heard that. Even though my house was like, to this day, 100% Boricua. My flags, going to the island. I didn't speak English until I moved to Westchester County. I was only spoke Spanish. Um, You know, always repping being Puerto Rican, the parade and all of that. And I took this class and I said to my dad, like, yo, why didn't you tell me any of this? He's Mm. like, it's just, we don't talk about that. And I I don't know a lot about that. I asked my mom the same thing. Like, how didn't you explain why as Puerto Ricans, we weren't Americans, we were American citizens, all this stuff. And I joined um, two two organizations, the Albany State University Black Alliance, ASUBA, and Fuerza Latina. But Fuerza Latina was elitist because they were straight up like, if you don't speak Spanish, you can't be in our group. Mm. Now I spoke Spanish, but I was like, that's some fucked up shit. Like not everybody grows up speaking Spanish. I'm already learning that we were colonized by Spain. So it was good. But Asuba is where I found the home. It was where 
anybody who is a person of African descent could be part of our organization. And by my junior year, I ran and became president of it. And after the election, I was embraced by Caribbean folks and African-American folks, but there were certain forces in Fuerza Latina and also a couple administrators that were Latino that were like, you need to choose. Are you, are you an African descendant or are you Latina? Mm. And I was like, that sh- I'm not choosing. Right. Like, I'm both. So my experience with Asuba would then allow me after I graduated from Cornell University where I went and did my master's thesis on the Young Lords. And this was when I started having conversations, you know, through letters with Dilcia Pagan and Oscar Lopez Libet and other political prisoners. I moved to Brooklyn and I became a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. And the Malcolm X grassroots movement is my political home from then until this moment. I'm not an active member in Malcolm X grassroots movement, but I was fully accepted for the most part that I was a person of African descent and that I had a lot of more reading and knowledge to do. But really what it gave me was also access to elders and people like Richie Perez and Iris Morales and Maita Moreno Vega and uh, Carlos Russell and just John Henry Clark, Kwame Ture, I mean, the, the, uh, Sonia Sanchez, the incredible amount of answer, uh, elders that I was at the feet of was like, okay. But in 2001, because of a little argument I had gotten into with one of my comrades in Malcolm X grassroots movement, where he was like, yo, you're black, but you really not black. And I was like, yo, my parents are both Puerto Ricans and your mother's white. So who's black? And then somebody in the group was like, yo, you need to write about that. And I did. I wrote an article in 2001 and it was who is black. And it's weird because to this day, People call me, it's been translated to mad languages. I look at the writing and I'm like, oh my God, I could have done such a better job at writing, (laughs) you know? Almost 20 years later, I get people from all over the world who'll be like, yo, thank you for repping. And I get people who are like, you're really not black, you're mad light skin. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, all right. But for me, what I realize is um, that there's a difference between blackness as a phenotype, which is discussing colorism, and blackness as a political tradition. So what I've always said is that as a black Puerto Rican, I'm a Pan-Africanness and a Puerto Rican independista. And what that means is that wherever we are as black people or indigenous people all over the world, white supremacy and enslavement has changed our entire trajectory. And that often too many times we're taught about our oppression, but not taught about our resistance and also not thought about the state violence that has been put upon us for resisting, particularly our elders and ancestors from the 50s to the mid 70s. So that was my political trajectory and you know, that's where I stay. That's why for me, I was able to join Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles. I have been teaching in Pan-African studies or I teach in ethnic studies and my comrades are Malcolm X grassroots members and not that are doing incredible work. So 
there's a quote by Stephen Beagle that um, one of the foremost fighters in South Africa that people really don't know a lot about. If it wasn't for Stephen Beagle, there'd be no Nelson Mandela. But Stephen Beagle said, just by accepting blackness, you already detach yourself from the chains of servitude, hmm. right? And um, that really stays with me and informs really all my work. It doesn't mean it's not easy. I mean, there have been times when people are like, you're not black, you don't mm. belong here. And I was like, I'm not fucking leaving. And there's a lot of lessons. I mean, you mentioned um, our elders and, and looking back to the past, better inform our present, to better inform where we want to go uh, in yeah. the future. Uh, and you had mentioned Young Lords, taking a page out of the Black Panthers organizing playbook and coalition building being something that's not new in today's world. So def I know we don't have a lot of time, but you know, definitely want to encourage everybody listening to, to learn up on that history. Um, when we look at our present right now, one thing that I found was really interesting at the height of the protests in response to the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and, and others, I saw that there was a, a big spike in book purchases on race, black history. Um, I'm sure who was black got a, I got a lot of a lot more readers that day too, or in that in that in that time frame too. Do you have any resources or books that you'd like to recommend that you think would be helpful for people trying to educate themselves on being co-conspirators on the Afro Latinx struggle? Um, any resources or books that you'd recommend? Yeah, first for, for white folks, I mean, the organization that I, I, I really respect is called Surge, Standing Up for Racial Justice. And um, if you just look online, they have incredible curriculums, especially for white people to speak to their white parents on Thanksgiving or these crazy holidays, mm -hmm. you know. I really respect the work they're doing. Southerners on new ground. Because a lot of times, if we're in the East Coast or the Midwest, we don't realize the incredible history down South, you know, of organizing. Specifically for Afro-identified Latino, Latina, Latinx folks, the Afro-Latino reader, the altar of my soul, and when the spirit stands mambo by my mentor, Dr. Maita Moreno-Vega. Folks can go to the Caribbean Cultural Center online. You know, my website, josaclemente.net, but also PROnTheMap.com, which is the project. Everything is housed there from when we went. I, I took a crew of younger folks to cover the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, and we were there for 12 days and did incredible, incredible work. In fact, um, of course, two from Chicago, Sense Hernandez, if people know Sense, and his work is incredible. Um, and like, I, I'll tell people, listen to Rebel Diaz. Like, you know, Rebel Diaz is from Chicago. It's, it's Rod and, and Gonzalo and La Tere. And um, they've been not only my comrades, like to this day, I think they're one of the dopest hip hop groups ever, you know, period. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, listening to Dead Prez um, is important. You know, I, I encourage people that especially love hip hop to really look at Chuck D and his mm -hmm. career and legacy. I'm really lucky that I could just talk to him anytime and be down with him and learn so many lessons. But I think he's one of those hip hop artists 
that has always brought folks together, but been able to also tell the truth of our conditions, mm-hmm. you know, and um, there's more and more books coming out every day. Like um, I do want people to get, if they have children in their family, anti-racist baby by Dr. Ken Day, right? Like, um, I, I want people to read anything on Afro Latino, Latina, Latinx, anything, everything is out there. Mm. I, I want people to read, um, Johanna Fernandez's, who's a Dominican professor who just wrote probably the most definitive book on the young Lords. And almost 50 years later, there's only one book on the young Lords and it's hers. If you're on Facebook, hit up Chacha Jimenez, like, Chacha founded the Young Lords. She's from Chicago and he stays engaged online. Everything is mad accessible online, but until you really understand someone's narrative and the, the authentic way they come to the table with their politics, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X is very different than watching a documentary on Malcolm X. That's a great point. I, I remember I was watching with my wife who who killed Malcolm X on Netflix, and her, and I remember thinking, this doesn't even scratch the surface. Like yeah. this is like you <laughs> yeah. can't. There's only so much you can capture on film. I definitely agree. I think a book a week is a little much for me, Rosa. I'm a very slow no, reader, fine. but. Uh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I definitely could get a book in in a solid month. I could definitely, maybe two weeks, maybe two weeks. I'm going to try and hold and myself you know accountable on that. I'll also say I read children's books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's this new book about Arturo Schomburg, right? And it's a children's book, and I love it. And there's um, a lot of great graphic novels that are coming out, and I read those too. So I don't just quote read, like, academic, long-ass books, mm-hmm. which I do. I love anything quote fiction that's about the apocalypse because i'm like oh my god this is happening right now Mm. but second (laughs) children's books can be just as informative and i don't think i don't even like the category because some of the books that i read that are for my niece or nephew i'm like yo i just learned mad stuff real quick right like i didn't know that and now it's in a picture book for my niece or nephew so you don't have to read a big book a week but even try children's books the way That's they're great. coming out now, they're I kind of unapologetically black and brown, and I didn't have mm-hmm. any of this growing up. I never yeah. saw anybody of ours until I went to college. I never read a book about black and brown people till I went to college. I'll have to follow up with you after this interview because there's a New York author. Uh, actually, you might already know the book, but it's a children's book, and Pedro Bizu Campos is in there, Lolita Lebron is in there, and it's a picture book. It's a squared, like, perforated cardboard book. Uh, he's an author and artist. I think he has an Instagram page too. So, yeah, I'll definitely send it to you after this interview. So, you mentioned PR on the map, Rosa. I know you founded that org. You also founded another org called the Black Latinx Organizing Project. Can you share a little bit about both, a little bit more about both those orgs? What, what's their purpose? Why are they necessary? What made you want to found yeah. them? So PR on the map was definitely um, something that I created right after the hurricane. And it is, still lives on online. And what it was is, you know, the hurricane hit, Hurricane Maria. I came home. I was actually in North Carolina the night the hurricane hit speaking. I came home and for some reason I was like, shit, I'm not gonna be able to go. I ain't got no money. Mm. And then all of a sudden, well, the first call was my dad. He's like, so when, when are you getting on a plane? 
I was like, dad, I ain't got no money. He's like, what do you need? I was like, I need this. And then I put out a call and within two days, uh, I fundraised $40,000. And then I said, I don't want to take anybody in my generation. I want to take younger people that are not so jaded right now. Mm. And those people ended up being um, Eli Fantuzzi, who is an incredible documentarian. Everybody see all the work he's done. Cat Lasso, Raquel Ricard, Mateo Zapato from uh, Chicago, and since Daniel Hernandez from Chicago. And we touched the ground and were there for 14 days covering everything that was happening. And I think one of the most important parts of our trip was beginning to tell people there was no way it was 67 people who died, Hmm. you know? And while we were reporting there, I actually got a call from the New York times and they said, well, what proof can you give us that more than 67 people have died? And I'm like talking to the people. That's what proof. We just took a van up to um, Utuado where the military is up in here talking about they can't get a Humvee up on the mountain. We got the, we got our 18 passenger trailer up on the mountain and it was scary and we were floating and flash floods, but we did it. So um, PR on the map lives online and I tell everybody use our videos, use our pictures. Um, we made a short documentary. We also made one in partnership with Tidal around um, Luisa and Afro Puerto Ricans and how they responded to the hurricane. And for me, it was one of the you know most important things I've ever been able to do. But part of it is because I had a dope group of young people that were savvy and um, knew exactly what needed to be captured and told at that time. You know, mm-hmm. um, Subsequently, that would um, lead me to Puerto Rico last year, right before Jose Joel, the governor, had to resign. So I was on the ground in Puerto Rico last year with the protests. My whole goal with PR on the Map, too, was also to highlight like the Feminist Collective and Ajit Aite, two of the dopest groups uh, on the ground. And um, really seeing like last year covering the protests, the incredible amount of Afro-Boricuas that were saying they were Black Puerto Ricans, but also the LGBTQ people in our communities. So that lives on online. I mean, I'm Puerto Rican. The minute I can go back, I'm going to go back. And we also were able to do the first broadcast interview with Carmen Yulín Cruz, the mayor of San Juan, and maintain a really good relationship with her. I put Latin and then the the, the symbol at, because I mm-hmm. want everybody to be like N-O-X. And I kind of struggle with still using the term, not the Black term, but I just started this nonprofit. I mean, it's been in the works for about a year and a half um, for me, just a lot of paperwork and stuff. And now I'm, I'm beginning to roll it out. And really, the goal of it is to bring Black, Latino, Latina, Latinx identified people to organize around politics Mm. and bigger than immigration. I've been on the streets with undocumented people reporting their stories. Last year, I was able to go to El Paso with an organization that a lot of people might know, V-Day, the Movement to End Violence Against Women by Eve Ensler. 
we have also other issues that are not related to our status as a people. And it could potentially be a blind spot that I might have because I'm Puerto Rican and born, right, as quote, an American citizen. But what I was realizing in, in El Paso and then in Juarez when we went to a shelter, that most of the brothers and sisters I saw were Black. They were Black Nicaraguans and Black Guatemalans and Black Honduras people. And, you know, they had no choice but to try to, quote, find a better life and then be stuck in Mexico at the moment where there was elitist Mexicans who were like, we don't want to take y'all anymore. Like, get out of Mexico. And of course, unfortunately, seeing um, a detention center where women were using paper towels to make diapers for their babies. So for me, as a journalist, I've gone through covering Hurricane Katrina, then the after fact of Hurricane Maria, and then um, what's happening in ICE detention and and learning so much that... um, I wanted to start this political project to really embrace a younger generation who is unapologetically uh, accepting their black or brownness for lack of better terms. But how do we turn that into political power outside of electing people into office? Mm. Um, And that's my whole goal with the project. I, I want people to be politically aware And I want them to also understand that progress does not only happen because an elected official is voted into something. In fact, Mm -hmm. I would would say that Chicago right now is learning very well through your mayor Mm -hmm. that every sister ain't a sister and every brother ain't a brother. And how do we hold people like us? that ascend to these power positions because we put them in and then completely turn on us the mm-hmm. minute they're in power. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's def- there's something to be said about focusing on the policy, not necessarily the outward appearance on the exactly. individual. And yeah. that, that shouldn't be the, that shouldn't be the main qualifier for you to vote somebody Hope for someone. You got to really do the research and dig and see what their history is. What's been their past stances? Did they shift? Are they just Mm -hmm. pandering? Is it all rhetoric? Like you really, and sometimes we get it right. A lot of times we get it wrong. And I think that's, that's a valuable point. We look at politics. um, I think a lot of people look at politics as this very just there's just too much context to really wrap your mind around and people think that it's not worth engaging in. But I'm just such a firm believer also that if we don't get engaged, then we're not going to see the change we want to see in the world. I mean, bigger, small policy, like we have to, we have to have the willpower and the passion to organize and bring, and if we have that passion, bring people along with us and, and take that time to, to really grow that organization. Sometimes it starts with a couple people, one person founding something, and then it, it grows because if you're feeling this, if you're seeing this reality in your community, chances are other people are too. There was this uh, renewed conversation around DC statehood. And I saw on Twitter a lot of people, um, politicians, non-politicians, Andrew Yang was, was one person that tweeted out, you know, we also need statehood for Puerto Rico. What are your thoughts on Puerto Rico statehood? Support? Are you part of it? Misguided? Oh, never going to happen. Okay. Yeah. Say more. Say more. 
Um, well, um, uh, I follow the tradition of Puerto Rican independistas. Puerto Rico needs to be a free nation that will allow us to be in the international community, which will allow us to work with other Caribbean nations and other nations throughout the world. Uh, I saw that that was trending. That was from a white boy. Um, there are definitely like, you know, the Puerto Rican elite, including I'm sure Lynn manuel and his father and their bullshit about Puerto Rico being a state. Puerto Rico will never be a state mm -hmm. because the people in Puerto Rico want to be free and an independent nation that can jo join the rest of the world. And if that wasn't there before Hurricane Maria, right after Hurricane Maria, you go to Puerto Rico now, ask people if they want to be state or free, and everybody's going to say they want to be free. Mm -hmm. Because for a long time in Puerto Rico, it was this. What would we do without the United States? After Hurricane Maria on day one, people knew what the United States would do, throw paper towel at us. And the only reason Puerto Rico is surviving right now is because the people in Puerto Rico have come together around mutual aid and helped each other. No dependency or worrying about what the United States government is or is not going to do. So we're never going to be a state. People could take that shit somewhere else. I may not see Puerto Rico be an independent nation in my lifetime, but it will happen. And um, I'm on a roll with all my ancestors, Rafael and Lolita, and all our living freedom fighters, Oscar and Dilcia, and Puerto Rico will be free. And I truly believe that. And if people go, to, I don't want people to go to Puerto Rico right now because COVID, mm -hmm. but the mutual aid and the younger generation around self-determination, mm -hmm. realizing that we don't need an electrical grid. We're an island. We have the sun. We don't need to be importing our food. We can grow our own food. All of that mm -hmm. is happening post-Hurricane Maria. And Puerto Rico right now is a very, if you go there, it's a very self-determining island right now. Nobody's yeah. depending on anybody, including us Puerto Ricans from the diaspora, right? Yeah. Although Puerto Ricans from the diaspora are doing as much as we can to support what's going on mutually in Puerto Rico. So I'm a Puerto Rican independista till the day I die. Mm. Yeah, we definitely have some episodes coming up about the legislation that was in place at the beginning stages of the uh, United States-Puerto Rico quote-unquote relationship. Um, specifically, like things like the Jones Act and things. And these aren't things that I learned in school. So I... We got we to gotta really capture these things and read a book. Like you said, read a book, listen to independent media. Like listen to Rebel Diaz. All of it is out there. There we go. There we go. There we go. Um, Rosa Clemente, thank you so much for making the time. How can people keep up with you on social media? Can you give us the web, your website again? Any social media handles? Um, how can people find Black Latinx Organizing Project, PR on the map, all that? How can people keep up with yeah. all of that you got all going on? Um, rosaclemente.net is my official site. I am um, very engaged in social media. So all my social medias are Rosa Clemente because there's only another Rosa Clemente and she's a doctor in Spain. And we've gotten to know each other because people 
confuse us. So. Oh my gosh. I'll <laughs> uh, put on Instagram. I'm known as Black Puerto Rican PhD. PROnTheMap.com right. is its own site, so everyone can use any of our material and share it. ProSacramento.net is my hub for everything, and I don't have a separate site for the Black. Latino, Latina, Latinx organizing project. I literally just got my status a couple weeks ago, um, but we will be making a separate site for that. And a lot of it at the beginning will be educational materials and curriculums that um, teachers, educators, and organizers could easily download to use um, in their community organizing work. Right on. Well, Rosa, thank you for the work you've done, especially up to this point. I know you've been in the work for, for a long time now, um, and we especially appreciate you making time to be on the podcast. So thanks for, for having a conversation with us today. Thank you for having me this long. Thank you for all the questions, and I enjoyed it, and I'll come back anytime. So thank you so much. Special thanks to Rosa Clemente for coming on the show. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast.gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.